float the plates and lift the weights And we are mates and weights are great And as of late we pontificate about the weights And make a podcast! Sumo is cheating! This is Weekly Weights with Alex and Will Welcome to Weekly Weights This is part two of our discussion with Jacob Skeppis That we began last week with a chat about education for personal trainers This time we're going to talk to him about hypertrophy Overlooked aspects of hypertrophy programming and exercise selection. We hope you enjoy it. Okay, welcome back to episode 24 of Weekly Weights. We're here with Jacob Skeppis. Skeppis? Skeppis? Oh, I don't know. I'm out of my depth. We're going um, gonna to talk about um, training now. Yeah. Um, Jacob, you've put a lot of effort, obviously, into being professional and well-educated um, and systematizing your training. But Alex and I have decided that your biggest selling point is that you've got some of the jackedest arms in the Australian fitness industry. So we wanted to ask oh. you, um, and you've you already sort of started talking about the way you think about hypertrophy training, but we want to know what you think are some underappreciated principles of training for muscle growth. Yeah, I think, number one, thank you for uh, the recognition that the girth of my arms is meeting your satisfaction. I think real recognizes real. Before you continue, Jacob, are you expecting a natty or not video soon? I've never thought about that. I actually had a guy comment on my um, on the picture I put up on Facebook saying, yeah, clearly you use, and if you had a good training program, you'd see even better results. And I was like, oh, fuck. But I have had a couple of uh, call-outs, but nothing uh, online uh, on the YouTube platform just mm-hmm. yet. That well, would be, let that this would be the first. We should make one. Yeah, Jacob, <laughs> suspect natty. Um, yeah, either mediocre juicer or very impressive natty with huge arms. He's here to tell us about hypertrophy training. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> I guess uh, underappreciated aspects of... Uh, hypertrophy training. We obviously know, you know, the volume, frequency, intensity are the big players, and all the rest of it. Um, but I think what many people fail to realise is how critical exercise selection is when it comes to building muscle, and not appreciating the role of biomechanics enough, um, or just mechanics in general enough when we talk about hypertrophy so usually discussions of hypertrophy um, I wish I could have got in there for the shacks behind, behind the scenes there um, <laughs> it's like selfing with a celebrity you know we take all the pictures so we can advertise on social media I love it podcasting yeah get, but you carry on exercise selection is crucial yeah I think uh, you know if you talk to most coaches about hypertrophy training they're not going to discuss basic mechanics, things like force vectors, length tension relationship, they're really going to ignore those things. And I think when it comes to building muscle, we need to have a very thorough understanding of those uh, factors relating to exercise selection and movement because they can play a huge role in the type of stimulus we get and the subsequent uh, adaptations. And a really good one that comes to mind is you know when we train the shoulders, most people just do side raises, you know, things like that. They might do cable side raises, but they don't understand the why behind 
doing a side race. For example, with a dumbbell raise, the line of pull and the direction of the force is down because gravity and the dumbbells is pulling towards the center of the earth. Now, that's very useful when we want to train through a shortened position because the loading will be increased and force on the shoulder joint will be highest when we take the dumbbells further away from the body. That means we're getting more loading through that shortened position, which is great, but we know that training through a full range of motion is really useful uh, when it comes to hypertrophy because we get greater amount of tension. But we don't really get a lot of tension through that uh, lengthened position. So this is where a cable pulley or using cables to do your side raises uh, can come in handy because then we're changing the line of pull, even though gravity is still working vertically because the weights within the pulley system, they go up and down, right? But the way the, the pulley system is structured, the cable can pull uh, you know, almost horizontally. And that means that we can train the shoulders to a lengthened position, which again is really useful because we're now getting a stimulus in uh, a position of the lift that we otherwise wouldn't be able to get if we did dumbbells only. So that's just one example. Uh, another example is you know, just your dumbbell raises. Everyone just does a dumbbell raise. They don't put too much forethought into it. It's just a dumbbell raise. But if you want to get bigger biceps, we need to understand that we can train you know, through a more demanding position, so a mechanically disadvantageous position to increase the amount of tension and force placed on the biceps. So this is where we could use a inclined dumbbell curl because we're getting into shoulder uh, extension and therefore increasing the range of motion and getting greater tension stimulus on the biceps. So very, very useful. Um, but again, people don't put this kind of forethought into uh, the exercises that they select, nor the execution of their exercises uh, when it comes to hypertrophy. A lot of the discussion centers around the you know big principles, training volume, things like that, but not many people really hone in on the, uh, the smaller details, uh, like exercise selection, and then more importantly to exercise selection is uh, exercise execution. And this is where 99% of people really fuck up um, because they might have the best laid out plan, but they actually don't know how to execute the lifts appropriately. And I think there's a lot of things that powerlifters can learn from bodybuilders, and there's a lot of things that bodybuilders can learn from powerlifters, and an area that bodybuilders really, really struggle with is learning how to create you know, total body tension when performing lifts, especially isolation um, movements, and how beneficial this can be in creating more force at the target muscle group. Um, you know, things like irradiation, so you know, the ripple effect of tension when we get uh, you know, that total body tension starting from the floor, transferring all the way up to the specific muscle group that's uh, performing an action. Uh, really important, but bodybuilders forget this um, and more often than not don't execute their program effectively. Um, you know, so technique, uh, understanding all of those little details I mentioned, you know, around force vectors, length tension relationship and things like that. So I guess that's, yeah, one area that's really underappreciated. Okay. Um, this actually is an indirect response to that and I agree with everything that you've said, but I feel like it's useful for me to sometimes play devil's advocate. So, yeah. um, so you've said that things like, um, you know, good exercise selection and optimizing execution so that you can distribute tension across the whole muscle and ensure full development's important. Um, but, Eric Helms, who was one of the people that you nominated as being um, being a really, really good person to listen to, I recall him saying at one stage that although he thinks 
you know, exercise variety and selection is probably important and useful in lots of ways. If you were to just sort of have a bunch of basic exercises and use them over and over again, you'd likely see full development or very close to full development. And the second and the second thing that occurs to me is although we've got some evidence of different regional development in muscles depending on muscle action, so like hamstring movements, I know they've shown some difference in regional development, whether you were doing a hip extension or a knee flexion exercise. Um, although that happens to be the case, I don't know that there's, and maybe it's just impossible to get this evidence, but I know that there's any evidence that say you can develop more of you know a certain region of your biceps by distributing the exercise such that you can actually have tension maximized there. So, yeah. um, um, so I guess bringing those things together, how important do you consider those things next to the big basic stuff you said, like frequency, intensity, and volume? How much of a difference maker do you consider it to be? And they're sec- um, in they're what way? definitely secondary. Yeah. So, so I guess you, you, the question that you asked was, what are some of the areas that are underappreciated? Mm-hmm. Um, and they would be the areas that I feel are under appreciated but in most cases like there are instances where people overemphasize those things that is they pay too much attention to them they think the exercise selection is the number one thing that's going to build muscle and that you know the execution of your exercises and things like that is you know how you can build muscle long term um but that isn't true and just let me state for the record that this was all on the assumption and the premise that people pay attention to volume, frequency, and intensity, progressive overload, all of those big, big rocks. Um, But once you get those big rocks in place, I think that's where recognizing that exercise selection uh, can be the next step in taking your training uh, to to another level and optimizing things even further. Um, And same for, you know, your angles, length tension relationship uh you know force vectors things like that and just to note no i don't think you can uh hypertrophy a particular region of the muscle um through changing the angle or the you know tension parameters um because you know hypertrophy is going to occur throughout the muscle but you can get more recruitment of a specific pool of fibers depending on the type of exercise you perform and the angles the uh, force vectors, all those kind of things, but it won't necessarily dictate that you get more or less hypertrophy in that area. You're just doing more work with a certain portion of fibers. For example, the chest, we know that the clavicular head and the sternal head uh, obviously responsible for pressing movements, our horizontal pressing movements, but when we change the angle of inclination in terms of the bench and the torso, we start to recruit more and more clavicular heads as they line further and further with uh, changes in torso position. So as we come towards a vertical torso position, uh, and vertical line of pull, direction of force, we're gonna use more clavicular head and less sternal uh, fibers. So again, this just has implications for how we select our exercises. If you wanna build a bigger chest, typically most males and females don't lack in the lower portions of the chest in terms of their development. Their development uh, needs to be prioritized towards the clavicular head, so the upper chest. Yeah, how's Will's upper fibers looking? Um, therefore, it's, it's probably a good idea to, to use an incline bench press um, as opposed to a horizontal press 
potentially using less and less arch so that we can increase the range of motion, uh, things like that. Um, but again, number one, I think as long as you're ticking the boxes of the you know primary movement patterns, that is, you have a squat variation, a hinge variation, a vertical uh, push and pull, and a horizontal push and pull, um, then you're really going to be getting most of your development through that. But I think over time, uh, once you get those big rocks in place, um, you can see more optimal results if you really start to hone in on exercise selection. For example, you might have a squat in your program, but just because you're doing a squat doesn't mean it's the most optimal exercise for your quad development. And especially if you're a bodybuilder and you've got access to a hack squat, I would pick a hack squat every day over a barbell squat for most physique athletes. Number one, it's safer. Number two, it distributes a greater amount of tension to the knee extensors, and that's what you're going to be using the squat for, right? So I think that in and of itself should should play a huge role in terms of how you set up your program. If you're just performing squats because if I do a squat, I'll get bigger legs because on average that's what works for most people and that's a very simple and effective exercise to perform. As you both know, the squat's a very complex movement. It requires a lot of mobility and stability at a number of joints and for a physique enthusiast who isn't going to come to the gym 30 minutes beforehand to foam roll, do their prehab and rehab work before they squat because they don't really give a fuck about squatting, they care about building bigger legs, I think exercise selection shouldn't be downplayed and most of the time, as I said, it's underappreciated um, because it can make the difference between a good program and a great program for a lot of people. So I think you have Brian Minor involved in your mentorship, is that correct? Yeah, he's really brilliant. I think his website's Myolene, is that right? Myojournal. Myojournal. Um, Myolene's someone else. That's someone who does memes on Facebook, I think. Um, but yeah, Brian, he said, he wrote a couple of articles which I read and I thought they were just some of the most like thought-provoking, really well-written articles, um, articles I've read. And one thing that he said about hypertrophy training that differs from the way we think of powerlifting, because in powerlifting, the... The end goal really is to get people better at lifting weight from A to B. So, you know, your the way in which you move external load is the end goal. Therefore, if external load goes up, then great, you're killing it. Um, whereas for in the case of um, bodybuilding, because really what we're trying to do is use the tension that we create in going through these movements to cause physiological changes. So we want to we want that mechanical tension to actually induce a change. Um, that manner of exercise execution, and this is why I agreed with you. Um, initially, the manner of our execution is really important because for something, say, like a dumbbell chest press, you know, if you're if you're executing it, you may be able to lift 15% more load if you happen to have strong triceps and a weak chest by having your arm fall inside the line of your elbow as you're pressing, so you have more elbow extension, um, elbow extension required, say, to move the weight. But if you actually alter your execution so that the chest experiences more tension with a given weight in your hands you can induce a greater physiological change or you can induce a greater physiological stimulus anyway with a given exercise just through small changes in your execution. And so in that respect, I agreed entirely with what you were saying. And I think, yeah, Brian's writing, look it up if you haven't read any of it, really, really sort of covers that very well. I think he's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And I think the execution side of things, as you mentioned, just small tweaks to how you perform lifts, um, is hugely important for where that stimulus is going. Um, 
and like I said, you know, in the case of a powerlifter, and as you mentioned, you want to get from point A to point B in, in the safest and most effective and efficient way possible. So you're looking to make things more mechanically advantageous powerlifters. That's why they low bar squat, right? Mm. You know, the shorter the moment arm is, <laughs> the less force they have to produce. Whereas a bodybuilder, we don't necessarily want the shortest moment arm. And again, this is where the you know, understanding force vectors like tension curves and things like that becomes important because we need to recognize that not all volumes and tensions are created equally and the distribution of tension to certain muscle groups um, is dependent on the way that we execute them and how we perform them in the first place. So like I mentioned, the, the bicep curl, if you're performing a bicep curl and you're, you're bringing your elbows forward and you're you know, coming into shoulder flexion, that's great because we know that one of the functions of the bicep is to you know, flex the shoulder, um, but also it minimizes the amount of tension placed through the bicep as a whole because you know shoulder flexion, there's a lot of other muscle groups involved in that. Whereas when we go into shoulder extension and we get that you know, greater range of motion where at a mechanically disadvantageous position now, we get more tension throughout the whole of the bicep. So understanding the you know, anatomy and the functions of each muscle group at you know, certain joints and joint angles, things like this, um, as well as the amount of tension placed on the target muscle group at those joints and certain positions of the lift is hugely underappreciated by most lifters. And this is not to say that it should take precedent to everything else um, that I've, you know, we've spoken about in the big rocks of training, but I, I guess what a lot of lifters don't understand is just how much more progress they can eke out if they do pay enough attention to these things and over time learn to dial in on these things. I wouldn't worry about you know your exercise selection and understanding length tension relationships and things like this if you don't understand what volume frequencies and intensities you need to be using, you don't understand how to progressively overload and you've got shitty technique. These kind of things are the icing on the cake but I do think they are a little bit underappreciated and they can make a huge difference uh, for a lot of people. So you've just mentioned those big rocks, volume, intensity, frequency, um, and exercise, like how we move and how we perform the exercise. So let's say that all those things are in place and are adequate or good. How important do you then consider um, isolation work to be in achieving like the most amount of muscular um, development? Awesome. So like I mentioned earlier, one of the things things that I changed my beliefs about was that you could build muscle um, with just the big lifts and compound multi-joint exercises and you know as, as we know <laughs> one of the big rocks is specificity so you get the specific adaptations to the imposed demands of the, the stimulus and whilst your big lifts are going to give you quite a significant amount of tension and loading through all muscles for example you do a pull up you get, you know, especially if it's supinated, you're going to get quite a significant amount of uh, tension stimulus through the biceps as you flex the elbow. In a bench press, you're going to get quite a bit of tension through the triceps because you're extending uh, the elbow. Obviously, squats, deadlifts, the list goes on, so on and so forth. But I think, as you said, to get the most amount of muscular development um, of any muscle, I think isolations play a very, very important role for two reasons. One, not all volumes created equally. The volume that you're getting through those big lifts for uh, those smaller muscle groups 
think of it like this. It's auxiliary to the tension placed on the primary muscle group. For example, in a pull-up, the primary muscle group is the upper back, right? So the tension stimulus is on the biceps is almost secondary to the upper back. Same for a bench press. The you know tension stimulus is primarily loaded through uh, the pecs. Triceps will be secondary. Um, and again, I think this is it's fallacious to believe that you can maximize muscle growth with the muscle group that you're wanting to build being secondary in terms of loaded with tension in every exercise that you're performing. And you can best maximize your gains in a particular muscle group by training it specifically and dedicating uh, attention to it. So that is having those isolation exercises in there. So that's number one. Number two, measuring uh, performance and you know, as a proxy for muscle growth, your performance in the gym, uh, very, very, it's very, very difficult to do so if you're only using compounds because we get so much assistance through other muscle groups and usually compounds, the best way to perform them is to have a very safe and efficient way to move the weight from point A to point B. Now, like I said, if we understand the basics of biomechanics and things like this, with isolation movements and machine work, we want to be training through a mechanically disadvantageous position in some cases so that we can effectively place more tension on that target muscle group. And that's not a good idea in multi-joint exercises. So you can use your isolation exercise to get a, a greater training stimulus than you can in your multi-joint exercise. And measuring uh, your development in that particular muscle is a lot easier if you're using those isolation exercises. For example, if my uh, bench press goes up over time from, you know, let's use a three by five at 100 kilos to three by five at 130 kilos, yeah, I guess you could say that my uh, strength has gone up, which is a function of, you know, neural qualities as well as the morphological qualities, but how much have I actually grown my triceps in terms of being able to improve my lifting on that specific lift? Conversely, if I use a bench press three by five, it goes up from 100 kilos to 115 kilos, but I also use three by 10 to 15 tricep extensions. After that, obviously I'm getting more volume, but at the same time, if my repetition uh, ranges go up with a certain load, so if I'm able to do three by 10 at say 50 kilos, and I go up to three by 15 at 50 kilos, uh, that's an extra 15 reps at 50, uh, at 50 kilos, that is a lot easier to measure um, in terms of the direct improvements at my tricep because there is less and less potential for other muscle groups and you know neural qualities to contribute to those adaptations and improvements in the gym. So I think, yes, if you want to maximize your muscle growth, uh, the key word there is maximize muscle growth, uh, then your isolation is quite important. So if we were to quantify it uh, as far as like number of sets per week for a given muscle group, what would that look like uh, as a percentage of compound versus isolation? And then how yep. would this differ um, in the different muscle groups? Yeah, like that's maybe, a really good maybe question. Maybe give like a couple of examples. Yeah, that could be hours. Yeah. Just a couple though. Yep. I think firstly, um, stop being a smart ass, Alex. <laughs> Secondly, um, <laughs> The number of isolation exercises that you perform 
should be determined by how much time you have to dedicate towards your training. For example, if I have somebody who can only train 45 to 60 minutes in the gym, then I might be limited with how many isolation exercises they can perform, especially if they're only able to train three to four times a week. If they are able to train with a high degree of frequency and a higher degree of time to allocate towards each session, we have more tricks up our sleeve in terms of how we approach uh, splitting the volume. So we know through the research that 10 to 20 sets uh, is a good starting place for hypertrophy and obviously assessing the individual's response from there. So that would be the broad stroke. And in terms of a percentage, I think usually a anywhere between 40% to 60% compound to isolation uh, is a good starting point. And what that might look like is if you're doing 10 sets a week, you might do for a muscle group, for the quads, for example, you might get in, you know, say four sets of squats and six sets of leg extensions, for example. Um, and if you're doing 20 sets per week for the quads, you might get in eight sets of squats. And that could be broken down to, you know, you might do a five by five on the one day, and then you might do a three by eight on the, on the second day. And then you might get in 12 sets of isolation work. Um, and the isolation work doesn't necessarily uh, need to be at that percentage. You could go 50-50, but it depends on, again, somebody's joint integrity, their leverages, there's a lot of considerations, but I think number one is the time commitment they have towards their training. If they're very time poor, I would shift that percentage way up towards the compounds because bang for buck, we need to get you know appropriate amount of mechanical tension and the and amount of time we can dedicate towards isolation work isn't going to be that great, meaning that we can get more effective training in with those uh, compound lifts. But if somebody has more time to dedicate towards their training, I think, yeah, anywhere between 50-50, or 40-60 compound to isolation uh, is a good starting point but yeah it's it's also muscle group dependent as well so I think for the quads uh, for example you would have a greater degree of compound training versus isolation because the quads really the only isolation exercise you can perform is a knee extension which you you don't probably don't need to be performing uh, as many isolation uh, exercises for the, for the quads. However, for the chest, I think a greater degree of isolation work can be beneficial um, because things like cable flies, uh, pullovers, things like that can be really, really useful um, you know, in getting more training stimulus but not beating up your shoulders because we know that the shoulders also get quite a lot of uh, wear and tear through other things like you know, if you're performing low bar squats, performing overhead pressing work, if you're performing benching, all those kind of things. So I think, yeah, isolation work could be greater um, for pecs, and same goes for the specific muscle groups that only really get direct training through isolation work. So for example, the biceps, I think you do need to consider your con- your compounds. Uh, same for the triceps, uh, but I wouldn't be prioritizing my development through those compound lifts. I would be looking to make sure that I'm allocating sufficient time and inflation so that we can get maximize uh, progress like we spoke about earlier. Cool. Um, you mentioned those compound lifts, um, like the bench, for instance. 
and you mentioned that we wanted to do a certain number of sets per body part. How would you um, allocate like a bench press, for instance, when you when it's uh, sort of chest, shoulders, and tricep work? How do you allocate those sets as far as those body parts go? Yeah, so I guess in terms of determining where the uh, volume is directed, I keep it pretty simple. So I know a lot of people will uh, allocate, you know, that counts as one set for the chest and then the secondary muscle groups, it could be half a set. Um, But I keep it simple. I will determine the primary muscle group and that's where the set will be contributed to. So for a pressing movement, like a, a horizontal press, the primary muscle group is obviously the pecs, therefore that would be one set to the pecs. Um, whereas in a tricep push down, it's the triceps, therefore that's the triceps. And we can differentiate by that as long as you keep it standardized uh, across you know, the board um, for all muscle groups and that you keep that consistent through all mesocycles um, and you yeah, change the allocation of that volume accordingly by the exercise that you select, then you should be fine. It, it, it's a case of feasible. It's going to take me fucking an hour to quantify all of the you know allocations to a volume to certain muscle groups if I go into the nitty gritty. Yeah, so curious basically. Um, but I think you can get yeah, keep whatever the primary muscle groups this where the set goes to. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I think I've actually done a few sort of like back of the handkerchief calculations for some of my bodybuilding clients here and there um, to do that and realized it takes five minutes to give you a good enough idea to see if your ballpark correct in everything. But like you said, it could take hours if you got really neurotic about it. And I don't think necessarily for any great benefit because, you know, other than just saying, do I fall ballpark within these figures? The reason you do those calculations is so that you can adjust or maintain volume from cycle to cycle. So, yeah. and you know, if you're choosing, I guess the other aspect is if you're choosing variations of exercises, that might tax a secondary muscle group slightly more, then you're already doing that with the intention of increasing volume in that in that muscle group as well. And you can figure that out very quickly, but it doesn't need to be doesn't need to be incredibly sort of academic or rigorous for actual writing program purposes. Yeah, exactly. I, I agree totally. Um, what about um, you were talking about the way you would load squats versus leg extensions. Do you think isolation work in general should be loaded or progressed differently to compound lifts? For, this is for bodybuilding. Most definitely. Um, number one, the absolute loads used for uh, isolation lifts is going to be uh, smaller. Thus, the percentage increase in those lifts is going to be greater with your traditional load increments of, say, 2.5 kilos. So if you're using 10 kilos on a side raise, and you want to increase and progressively overload and you then choose to go up to the 12.5 kilo dumbbells, that's a 25% increase from the 10 kilos to the 12.5 kilos, which is quite significant. Whereas if you add 2.5 kilos on a 100 kilo squat, that's a 2.5% increase, which is monumentally different. Therefore, in the context of bodybuilding and what bodybuilders should do to progress and load 
these exercises over time is to use double and triple triple progressions. So that is to add reps first before adding load, especially when those load increments are going to see a significant percentage increase in the total load used. So for those unfamiliar, a double progression is adding reps first uh, within a rep range and then adding load. So that might look like three by 10 to 15. You start with three by 10 at 10 kilos, work up to three by 15 at 10 kilos, and then you go to the 12.5 kilo dumbbells, starting back at three by 10 and repeating that. A triple progression is adding uh, reps, then sets, and then load. Uh, some people actually do it differently, but I like to add reps. So starting with two by 12 to 16. So what it would look like on a program is two to three sets of 12 to 16 reps, for example. And you would start with two sets, 12 reps, work your reps up, and then add a set, starting with three by 12 at the same load, working up to three by 16, and then you can increase reps. So this is like really useful for your side raises because it could take months before you can add weight on the bar for a side raise. Um, and your double progressions, really useful for things like bicep curls, tricep pushdowns, where it might not take as long to go to the next start increment. So yeah, I think there should be very much a difference in terms of how we apply uh, the principle of progressive overload uh, for isolation lifts if our goal is to maximize muscle growth. Okay, so what about um, training certain muscle groups differently? So say, you know, there's people who've posited things that say muscles that are fast twitch um, should tolerate less volume and maybe be trained with higher intensities and vice versa, or that muscles that undergo more stretch under load can handle less volume. Do you think things like that are the case? And are there any like really important practical examples? Yeah, yeah. So I'm not 100% convinced of fiber type specific training just yet, but I do think it does play a role in how much volume can be used. But I think more so what determines uh, the kind of volumes and frequencies that we use, uh, the absolute loads that we use for a certain lift. And I do agree with you that the uh, loading through a stretch position is significantly uh, fatiguing when compared to you know concentric only training. Um, However, although the legs are arguably one of the larger muscle groups, they do respond, respond quite well to high volumes. And just to backtrack, I sort of jumped ahead of myself there. Uh, in my experience, the, the size of the muscle group can play a very big role as well in the volumes and loading zone use. And that's why I said uh, despite the legs being one of the largest muscle groups, they respond well to high volumes. Um, but I guess what's important uh, you know, within this is just realizing that not all volume is created equally. And like I said, um, you know, the volume that you get in a squat, very different to the volume you get in a leg extension. Um, and in terms of the muscle groups we train, uh, there will be some individual differences in terms of the response to those volumes. For example, um, you know, we know that fatigability plays a big role in you know, how much we can obviously recover and then adapt. And on average, women recover better than males, meaning that they can use more volumes than men across the board for the most part, and they can train at higher relative intensities. Um, but again, this could come down to hormonal differences. It could come down to five-type-specific differences. Uh, there's a host of factors, the absolute loads that they use, 
all of these things. So I guess you need to really have a scope in terms of the lens that you look through, um, you know, how much volume can be used and the factors that contribute to uh, our fatigability and recovery to those volumes um, and the frequencies that we train them through. Okay, so just um, to follow that up a tiny bit, you've said that, say, in the instance of somebody who um, who has lots of time to train um, and can be in a gym, yeah, can be in a gym frequently for a long time, you might use more isolation work. Do you think that because isolation work is more targeted to a given muscle and may not put as much stress through joints and things as a compound lift would, do you think that using isolation work allows people to sustain greater total volumes than using compound work would. Yes, definitely. So I think in the case of someone who can train more uh, frequently and per session, time allocation, uh, you wouldn't want to use all of that frequency and time with big lifts because that would be seriously fatiguing. I don't think it needs much more explanation, but if you spend 60 minutes squatting only two to three times a week, versus 60 minutes doing both squats and isolation work three times a week, one one of those is going to cause a serious amount of fatigue. And I would say that most people would put their money on the squatting only 60 minutes three times a week. And if, if we can say that we all agree on that uh, for a number of reasons, I'm not going to get into them too much, um, then yes, I think the isolations play... A very important role in being able to get more volume in with less fatigue. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, speaking of fatigue, you wrote an Instagram caption a while ago, um, and it was something along the lines of it was to do with tracking rep PBs as a as a yep. means of like as a proxy for muscle growth. And you sort of alluded to it earlier when you were saying that isolation movements are a better indicator than compounds. But something else you said was that you can peak people's performance by reducing their cumulative fatigue. So if if somebody's best ever performance on bench press for sets of eight was, you know, doing a three by eight at 100 kilos at a time when they were doing, say, 30 sets of bench a week, and then you reduce their total amount of bench per week, or not bench, pecs per week to, you know, 10 sets, you might see a transient increase in performance that wouldn't relate necessarily to muscle growth. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're planning bodybuilding training, how much cumulative fatigue do you think is actually tolerable both within a session and within a block? And at what point would you say it starts to be unproductive to be carrying extra fatigue? Yeah, awesome. So I did say that on Instagram and fuck, I love when people like throw these things back at me and like ask me questions about it. I'm like, fuck man, I just want to put up like a, you know, a 30 word caption, fuck off. Yeah, that's (laughs) why I've been taking my clothes off more on my Instagram, man. It's so good. Yeah, you, know, you can be completely vacuous so long as you got a rig on you. Unfortunately, I don't have the rig either, so I'm just I'm just vacuous and naked. But it it's saves so you riding anything smart. All the followers, all the followers. It's Probably so funny. Of the I've, I've noticed now that on Instagram, this is an important observation for you fitness professionals out there. As I've gained more and more weight and lost the shreds over the last like four months, the views and likes on my bicep training videos has gotten significantly less. So, really? you know. That's why you got to stay shredded for the grams, guys. Oh, but... I thought fat seps were the secret. You remember when people used to say that fat seps? Like people would say, "I've got twenty inch arms." And they'd be like, "Yeah, but they're just fat seps because you're, you know, you're not shredded. Like you're not zizbra, therefore your biceps don't count." 
Yeah, I, I agree with that. I do remember that. I do agree. The uh, they, they definitely look bigger, but they're not as appealing uh, when, when you don't have the cuts everywhere. But anyway, right. let's uh, answer this question. Yeah. Accumulative fatigue, how much is too much, um, and where do you draw the line? So... Yeah, like all things, I think we need to define fatigue. So one, the, it's the inhibition of maximal performance. It comes about as a result of stress. Uh, number two, it's an acute impairment in exercise performance. So that can ultimately impair our ability to produce a maximal uh, amount of force or control motor function. And this was uh, studied by Bumper, a researcher in the fields of exercise science. And within that, we have acute fatigue. So as you mentioned, that's the... Uh, during the exercise and post-exercise, resulting in the inability to maintain or repeat absolute power levels. Uh, and then a chronic or accumulated fatigue, which is uh, diminished uh, performance, and that's a result of our inability to recover from the load and the summation of physical and emotional stresses. So when we train for hypertrophy, it's well established that volume is a key factor, secondary to tension. Tension drives the adaptation, like I said, so that's determining the direction of where we're going with things in terms of the qualities that we're uh, producing or trying to produce. And the exposure to the tension, the volume, uh, dictates the magnitude of adaptation, so how much adaptation we're getting. So therefore, for hypertrophy, as we accumulate volume over time, a huge factor uh, is fatigue. And it's inevitable that over time, and within the course of a training cycle, we accumulate fatigue. So for those unaware, we have a paradigm within the exercise uh, fields of science called the fitness fatigue model. And this basically measures uh, the changes in adaptations uh, with resulting levels of fatigue and how much performance is available given these changes in fatigue and fitness. So when we train, our fitness increases over time because we're getting better at dealing with the stress and we're adapting to preserve homeostasis and obviously cope with that stress in subsequent training sessions. But as we do this, so too does fatigue. And the key is to monitor both acute and chronic fatigue, ensuring that training performance doesn't diminish too much or beyond the point where we start to see rapid declines in performance, injury, decrease in motivation to train. So again, I think for physique athletes um, and how much fatigue is okay, you need to learn how to train with fatigue. And, and I think what a lot of people really forget is the importance of the repeat about effect. So that is, once we do uh, something more frequently, we adapt to it. And once we adapt to you know, higher relative intensities at certain volumes, we should see uh, subsequent improvements in training with those intensities and volumes. Now, the key is to find the sweet spot where we have appropriate amount of volume and stimulus through the tension uh, to see consistent, predictable improvements in training performance. Now, when it becomes detrimental and non-beneficial is when we start to see rapid decreases in all exercises within a training week. So for example, you might have an off day squatting and instead of getting your previous best of three by eight uh, the previous week at say 160 kilos, you might get three by six at 160 kilos. You might see a two rep drop off. But let's say that your leg extensions or your leg press that week is still going great guns. 
Does that mean that you need to deload and that's too much training fatigue? I would say not. If your joints are really beat up, maybe it's an indication that you should be deloading. If your motivation to train is at an all-time low, maybe you should be deloading. But if those three things are showing that, hey, maybe we don't need to deload, maybe there's still a few more weeks of productive training install, uh, I think that's an appropriate level of fatigue and we should be more accepting of fatigue when our goals are to build muscle because we know that volume correlates with fatigue and we need volume to get the adaptations we need and that exposure to tension. So I think looking to those uh, factors is really useful but just making sure training doesn't drop off uh, too much across the broad and really keeping an eye on yeah the joints and motivation to train. So I think one of the, or one of the one of the key takeaways I was getting from that is that you still do want to see consistent improvements in training performance yeah. or at least sustenance of training performance across the course of a block. Definitely. So okay. Yeah, so within the sort of loading parameters that you have, you want to be ensuring that your stimulus is enough to induce an adaptation but there's enough recovery so that you can go on and and put in a greater stimulus, you know, correct. with each repeat yeah. about. Is that correct? Yeah, man. Okay, yep. cool. And what about within the course of a training session? So say yeah. say if you were to do your leg extensions first, you'd be capable of doing, you know, sets of ten at fifty on the leg extensions, but if you follow three or four sets of squats with your leg extensions, you can only do it at forty. And say by your eighth set of leg extensions you could only use thirty of whatever unit of resistance we're talking about now. Do you consider that reduction in performance due to fatigue within the session to make that less stimulative? And at what point again do you say it's probably best that we split these sessions up? Uh, I think this one's more a practicality consideration than what's going to optimize physiology. Um, Being able to do 10 sets of a leg extension, number one, is going to take quite a lot of time uh, within one session, and number two, it's going to be very uh, mentally exhaustive for a lot of people to do ten sets in a single session. That, they're going to see that on paper and be very demotivated to go out and do that. Yeah, so I think it's more coach. so. Yeah, I think it's more so a practical uh, consideration than it is a physiological one. But in terms of uh, you know the acute fatigue that occurs during a session and post exercise, uh, it needs to consider number one are we getting a sufficient and effective training stimulus to drive the adaptation? Number two, is it taking into consideration uh, the potential to recovery from that stimulus? And number three, are we going to be able to induce the same or greater uh, stimulus in the subsequent training session? And if we can go through that checklist and tick that off, that's when uh, I would say that we have an appropriate level of acute fatigue. When we look to one of those factors and go, okay, Maybe we're not going to be able to recover from this kind of training within the time frame between this session and the subsequent session. That's when the uh, cumulative fatigue might be too great. Um, and I guess, yeah, a lot of considerations around this, but that's the process that I go through when determining the per session uh, volumes and intensities. You know, very much looking to the you know time course of recovery for that particular muscle group um, between the subsequent training session. So I just wanted you to kind of tie everything that you've said in in the last hour. So if you could give us like a few dot points of the most important things if you're after maximum hypertrophy mm-hmm. in one minute or less, go. 
Fuck you, man. <laughs> oh, God, one minute. I've been squat trying to fucking milk. learn about this for like so. 10 years. All right. Number one, squat every day. No, I'm kidding. Um, one, make sure that you have sufficient training intensities as measured by your relative intensity of effort. So that is train with an RPE of six or more on average over time with sufficient volumes, monitoring your response to those volumes as measured by hard sets per week, uh, per muscle group. Number two, aim to progressively increase your strength across multiple reps on multiple sets, on multiple exercises with the same or similar levels of fatigue. And number four or five, whatever the fuck I'm up to now, you kill me with this question. Um, Pay attention to the most important variable, which is how you look. Nobody wants to build muscle to claim that they have, you know, a fat-free mass index of insert arbitrary number. They want to look bigger in their t-shirt, and when they take off their top, they want mostly the same sex to look at them and say, wow, man, you look fucking jacked. So make sure you actually pay attention to the variable that you really want to change, not just the bullshit numbers in the gym, on a DEXA scan, your girths, things like that. These are useful monitor them but most importantly look at how fucking big you are so eat big eat big train big get big you know it bro <laughs> alright we're going to take a break we're going to come back and hit Jacob with the four questions that tell us everything we need to know about a person weekly ways hopeless welcome back guys to weakling weights with your weekly weaklings William Berkman and Alex Hayes. And this is episode 24 with the strong man, the ever muscular Jacob Skeppers. That was actually pretty good. Yeah, good effort. Yeah, you could have a gig on here. Um, Alex is going to go overseas <laughs> for a few weeks. So if you want to, yeah, maybe have a trial run on the Weekly Weights podcast, you're in. We can maybe do a Weekly Weights JPS fusion. Um, all right. I'm keen, man. <laughs> all right. This is, this is the four questions that tell us everything we need to know about a person. Um, Jacob rudely admitted earlier that he hadn't actually listened all the way through most of our episodes, so he doesn't know what's coming. Alex, do you want to hit him with question one? Question one is, if you could take anyone out to dinner, dead or alive, who would it be? And you can't take me. It would be my partner, Siobhan. Not my wife, Alex. Yeah, you always call her your wife and you're not married. Are you like engaged or oh. as in like it's just a fact? We're engaged. Yeah, we're... No, we're engaged. <laughs> you're saying it like you're trying to justify yourself to us like, you know, we're engaged. She hasn't quite agreed to it yet, but she'll come around. <laughs> Pretty much. It's it's more a case of two kids being extremely uh, difficult and taking precedent to anything else in life. So, yeah, we'll get around to it eventually. Um, are they? Are you sorry? Do you have boys or girls? Like, do you have a little flower girl that'll be able to, you know, walk down the aisle at your wedding and throw out petals and stuff? Because if not, so I'm totally. Will threw Will me under the bus before saying that I'd never actually watched through any of the weekly weights episodes. So I'm going to throw him under the bus here and say that he's never actually paid attention to anything that I do because I have two young girls that I blast all over Instagram. Yeah, you got me. You're fucking lawyer, bro. I'm just there for the I'm just there for the bicep photos. I'm going to be honest. I see kids and I just go like, Ugh. but he's been skipping over the ones now that you're not as lean. Yeah. <laughs> oh, let's go for Let's go for question two. 
question two. Who is your favorite athlete of all time? Oh, man. I've got quite a few. I'm going to name two. Can I name two? Yeah. For different reasons. Number one is Reggie Miller. Fuck yeah. From Great the Indiana answer. Pacers. Great answer. He's an absolute... He's the epitome of clutch player and just, yeah. Sorry, I'm ignorant. He's a running back in the NFL. Is that right? He's a shooting guard for the Indiana Pacers. Who is the running back? Reggie Bush. Yeah, that's the one. (laughs) All right, Reggie Miller. But but Jacob Reggie never won a title, so how can you say he's clutch? Mate, he's clutch. He's clutch. There's no arguing or doubting that. And number two would be... uh, No, he couldn't. But I feel Jordan's too mainstream, and that's just such a cop out. It's like saying, you know, Roger Federer. We actually haven't said. We actually haven't had Jordan yet. Really? Yeah. 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 Well, there you go. So, so I'm going to say, yeah, my second would be Rafael Nadal because he epitomizes just fucking grit and hard work. I remember actually, I used to watch uh, Rafael Nadal play because I used to be. Uh, very much into my tennis as a as a young kid, uh, early teen. I remember watching uh, Raphael play. I used to watch these clips of him when he was sixteen um, on the internet, uh, just yeah, rallying with someone up and down the court. And I remember thinking, "Fuck, this kid's gonna make it." And then, literally, like four years later, whatever it was, he played against uh, Leighton Hewitt in Australia and lost like seven six, seven six, seven six. Um, you know, I think the third round of the Australian Open and everyone was like wow this kid's a freaking freak and I was like oh, I've fucking been watching him you know, for like four years um, and then yeah to watch his journey unfold uh, you know and just knowing that he put in such a serious amount of effort over such a long time is very very admirable yeah he's the man yeah. I love Rafa alright love Nadal question three so which movie or television character are you most like Fuck. Everyone says I'm like Michael Scott from The Office. <laughs> Go on. You reckon? Yeah. Uh, no, I can see it. Okay, so that's what everybody else says. What about you? When you look in the mirror, who stares back and you can't say, like, Goku? Oh, well, he's not... Oh, uh, yeah, he's a TV character. Um, who stares back? I'd say I'm probably a combination of Russell Crumb, Brad Pitt. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Russell Crowe's looks. I don't know. I've actually Russell Crowe's looks and and Brad Pitt's. I don't even know what I have. The I only thing, the only thing um, that you I have in common with Brad Pitt is his character in Ocean's Eleven, how he's always eating. <laughs> I, I eat a lot. I eat a lot. No, I um, I don't know. I've never thought about that question. Yeah, sorry, sorry to disappoint with uh, a very unauthentic answer. Oh, that's alright okay the f- <laughs> this is probably the harder one but it's the best question so your life's being made into a montage you get to choose the backing music what is it the backing music would either be David Attenborough or um fuck what's his name oh my god I can't believe I've gone blank here how the do we know the dude with the very very Morgan Freeman. Hey? No, that's somebody. No, Morgan that's the narration. Freeman. No, you're talking about the narration. I mean the soundtrack. So, like, say your montage was set to Eye of the Tiger. No, no, that's what I was getting. Oh, you that's just want narration? I wouldn't have a soundtrack. 
I just want narration by one of those two. I've said that I want um, Morgan Freeman to uh, narrate my uh, funeral, but you know, very morbid topic. But you know, I, I, if I get that, I'll uh, I'll be a very happy man. Narrate your funeral, like as in to say, oh, everybody's filing into the church, or to deliver a eulogy. I reckon it'd be kind. Of, it'd be oh, very meta to have somebody actually standing there, literally telling everybody what they're doing at the funeral. <laughs> be weird no no I wanted to narrate the way I wanted to narrate the whole thing <laughs> it's fantastic alright you have one last job I warned you about it in one of our earlier breaks and you said you'd think of something so on weekly weights our guests sing us out normally you gotta sing us a song and say the words weekly weights what song are you gonna do well I've been focusing more on uh, answering the questions for you you lads than uh fucking trying to think of a song um, no swearing on the shit. podcast thank you oh, um, <laughs> Greg Knuckles hung up at this point yeah <laughs> he was like alright um, bye <laughs> <laughs> oh man you pick a song for me and I'll do it come on let's let's go Eminem um, um, without me oh that's a hard one no it's not oh, how's he gonna sing without me by Eminem um do the sound of music do the hills are alive with the sound of music and just say weekly weights the hills are alive with weekly weights that'd be good do you know what I'm talking about I don't even know that song oh, no God. I don't even know that song should we give him like an um, instrument or something <laughs> come on give me something give me something give, um, give me what, something. what kind of music do you like Jamiroquai, do Jamiroquai, you give me something. There you go. Do Daft, Daft Punk one more time. Weekly way. We're gonna celebrate. That could work. Um, one we- more week with weekly weights. There you go. <laughs> I don't even know what that was, but I just want to get it done. <laughs> I don't know if we should edit out. At the door and I, gotta go. I don't hey? know if we should edit out like the awkward four minutes in the middle or whether we should leave that just in the suspense so people can hear you literally one bar of singing <laughs> alright leave it there thanks so much for joining us man we really appreciate it that was fantastic um, last no thing problem, actually guys. tell Thank everybody so where they can find JPS online so they can look you up yeah so uh, obviously on Facebook JPS Health and Fitness Instagram uh, same deal and if you're a coach interested in more uh, or a better understanding of the science and its application, uh, JPS Education. So that's where you can find them. And yeah, little old me, I'm just Jacob Skeppis. Skeppis, S-C-H-E-P-I-S, not Sheppis. Uh, underscore JPS on Instagram. Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, everybody will chat to you next week. Peace. Thanks, lads.